college, staying at home so you can feel safe. What do you think is the soul of the knowledge? What do you think that makes her feel safe? Biting her lips and lowering her eyes to make sure there's food on the table. What do you think would be her surprise if the world was as willing as she's able? Hugging herself in an old kitchen chair, she listens to your hurt and your rage. What do you think she knows of despair? What is the aching of age? Sweet Honey and the Rock, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio. Happy Mother's Day to everyone out there, to all those people that mother, take care of children, regardless of gender. So we're saying Happy Mother's Day to all of you out there that do a lot of caring for others. That was a song uh, called Oughta Be a Woman, and it was Sweet Honey in the Rock, uh, but it's actually a poem by June Jordan. And June Jordan was born in 1936 in Harlem, New York, uh, to Jamaican immigrants. She's a Jamaican-American poet, playwright, essayist, and she was known for her commitment to political activism and human rights. If you're just tuning in, this is WVEW, 
107.7, your community radio station, also streaming live online at wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at 1 o'clock, and we replay Mondays at 2 p.m. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio, Twitter, and Instagram. The shows are recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. And the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests and not the radio station. Today's show, I air an interview with Dr. Luis Valdez of the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at UMass Amherst. I work with Dr. Valdez at UMass. I'm a graduate student in that same program, and I work as a research assistant for Luis. He's also on my committee. Luis works on issues around health, chronic stress, masculinity, and how these manifest for Latino men in Western Massachusetts. The Latinx communities in the United States bear a disproportionate burden of chronic disease, alcohol and substance misuse, depression, anxiety, and chronic stress. And so we're going to talk with Luis. We did an interview earlier in the week. We're going to talk about all these issues and his new men's group with Nueva Esperanza in Holyoke that is coming up. We actually had interviewed Nueva Esperanza last week on our show. So that's, a, that's something you can uh, check out on our Facebook page or SoundCloud. Before we get to the interview, we're going to start with a song by Los, Los Míticos del Ritmo. And we'll be back with Luis's interview. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Happy Sunday. Thank you. 
Los Míticos del Ritmo that you're listening to, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio. Happy Sunday to you all. Happy Mother's Day. We have a great show for you. Uh, we're going to speak with Dr. Luis Valdez from UMass Amherst. He is in public health, and his work surrounds chronic stress, especially with men of color, uh, and then specific specifically with Latino men in uh, Holyoke and the Springfield area. So we're going to go to part one of his interview where he talks about stress and talks about some of the work that he's doing. Luis, thank you for being on Indigo Radio. And I would love to have you introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about who you are. My name is Luis Arturo Valdez. I'm, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts in the School of Public Health health sciences and, and, and community health education in particular. You know, I was originally born in Mexico. Um, I grew up in Southern Arizona, in, in Tucson, Arizona. I, I feel like by, by, by training and by formal training, I'm an academic, but like, I like to still think of myself as, as an organizer, even though I've, I've left that space somewhat unattended for some time. But I think that that so much of the core of a lot of my work is is based in community organizing. So before I ever was an academic, I was a community organizer. It was a product of, I think, my intersected identities. Having lived undocumented for such a long time, you know, I only got my um, citizenship in 2015, being first generation sort of everything, first generation immigrant, uh, high school graduate, and so on, asserting my my indigeneity and, and sort of trying to straddle that that identity. The difficulties that come with, you know, trying to uncover historical trauma in family and in community. And then also being um, at, the t- at, that, at that time, sort of like being part, like a closeted part of LGBTQ community. And that's something that's like sort of flourished in my life in the last few years. That that's sort of what led to my activism and my my organizing. And that organizing then sort of leads to academia as, as sort of a, a radical resistance is what I used to think of it and I, I think of it as so less radical than it used to be before but uh but yeah so that's how, that's kind of like paints a, a bit of the trajectory of, of how I get to where I am and you so a, a lot of your work focuses on chronic stress for for men of color um and then in particular Latino or Latinx populations and could you before we get into that can you talk about what led to your interest in that, despite, of course, like the obvious that you yourself are Mexican, Latinx, and what brought your interest into like the stress and, and health component sure. around um, men and masculinity? Totally, totally. I think I think that that really a lot of the work that I've been involved in and what the sort of the more contemporary uh, literature around stress and, and, and trying to trying to really model for stress pathways, right? To, like to understand like how, how stress goes from, you know, the, the original stressor to, to health uh, outcomes that like uh, we see sort of stress as a key mediating factor between, between macro or sort of like larger systemic issues like racism, discrimination, gender role strain, and so, you know, picture stress in the middle of this pathway between that and then both 
directly through allostatic load and, and sort of the physical manifestations of stress and, and the, the strain that that puts on our, on our physical system. And then also indirectly through, through behaviors, right? So like through trying to find adaptive or maladaptive coping mechanisms to deal with that stress, um, then that also leads to behaviors that are, that are potentially detrimental to health. So you can think of alcohol, substance abuse, you know, poor dietary behaviors or sedentary behaviors, uh, sort of like the whole gamut of, of what, whatever behaviors. But the reality is, is that sure, as a health behavioral list, I, I, I see that as important, but also stress itself, as I was sort of trying to explain before, is this like that just purely through the body's reaction to acute, you know, stressors and things that are happening at a chronic level, right? So like, if we if you think of bodies of color, bodies of bodies of culture, and their experience with stress, with racism and discrimination in, in the US, and how it creates this chronic exposure to elevated stress loads that really has a detrimental effect on the body on, on you know immune systems digestive system cardiovascular system that then leads to detrimental health outcomes and so there's a gap that exists there between people who experience this chronic stress which would be in this case folks of color and people who don't and that is part of what justifiably what creates some of those some of the disparities that exist in health outcomes could you just define or help us understand for the listeners, when you talk about allostatic load, what is that? Perhaps saying allostatic load wasn't the best sort of a illustrator of that. Our body is, this, we've, we've, we've evolved to be able to react to, to certain stressors. And so you think, you know, you think of trying to like fleet a predator, right? So like, you know, our bodies and, and, and most of the animal world has evolved in their, you know, in their system to a cascade of effects that when we're in danger, for instance, then your, your heart uh, rate uh, goes up, your muscles tense, you know, your palms get sweaty. There, there are certain pieces of certain places of your brain that become deactivated and other pieces of your of brain that come activated. And there is a, a sort of a cascade of events. There's a chemical imbalance that is useful in that moment because you need to flee the predator. But if that chemical imbalance then stays imbalanced in that way chronically right over a period over a long period of time because you're always either experiencing direct stressors you you anticipate stress right so if you're in a situation in which you know that that situation can bring about stress right so if you are being your specific place of the forest and you're fleeing a predator and you know that you know you could be attacked at that moment and so like even if you're not directly attacked all those systems are still on high alert because you're anticipating that stress and so if you take that that same sort of model and you apply it to uh, folks experience racism discrimination for instance all those systems uh, are elevated when you're experiencing directly experiencing stress and discrimination and also elevated when you anticipate that something bad could happen and so I for instance am a body of color out in western Massachusetts with predominantly white spaces you know I go to stop and shop for instance and nothing most of the time nothing is directly happening to me but because I'm in a predominantly white space and in an area of, of you know, the state, for instance, that, that has historically been unfriendly to people that look like me, then I have an imbalance, right? So like I'm anticipating something, I'm ready to fight or flee. That in and of itself, even me, you know, professor at a university experienced that because I'm anticipating that something bad might happen. And so if I experience that every day, you know, several times a day, that has a chronic sort of impact or that's chronic. And then it has an impact on my systems. 
I enjoy a lot of privileges that folks don't. And so like I can drive away from that and have the safety of my home. And, and I have, I have a, a healthy sort of coping mechanism. So things that are health beneficial, I can deal. Right. So it's also, it's not, it's not so much about, you know, just experiencing the chronic stress is enough. It's also like we have differential ways of coping with it. So some folks either through experience or through some kind of privilege, right? So socioeconomic privilege can have a different different abilities to be able to cope with this with the with the strain. That coping also matters because if you know, even if you're experiencing racism or discrimination based chronic strain, and then you have an ability ability to cope with it, then then you can deal with it better, and it may, might not have such a drastic or catastrophic impact on your systems as it would for somebody who experiences this type of stress chronically and doesn't have a sort of the right, the ability or access to cope. The field has at times called maladaptive coping mechanisms, which could be like alcohol, substance abuse, et cetera. I think of those as adaptive because there's, you know, there's no bad adaptation. There's just an adaptation that might be bad for your health, right? So like, we're just we're doing as best as we can with the things that are in, within our reach. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction actually that you, that you just made. The field calls it maladaptive, but they're just adapting to the situation around them, which is a way better, less like victim blaming way to sure. call I mean, it. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to vilify a, be- a behavior simply because it has it has a detrimental impact on your health. It's like alcohol use or abuse or misuse as an adaptive coping mechanism for stress, like mm-hmm. acutely, like it's literally bringing those systems down and it's it, it, it's causing other things people are really adapting to that moment and trying to like find that balance. And so obviously then comes another problem. If, if, if it's like chronic misuse or abuse of alcohol, then there's actually interactions that take place that like also have uh, impacts on detrimental levels of stress as well. But the reality is, is that we're all doing as best we can with the tools that we have within our reach. Mm-hmm. That was Luis Valdez that you're listening to. And this is Anna on Indigo Radio. Luis does a lot of work around men's health, uh, stress, disease, especially with the Latino community in Western Mass. And we're going to go to our first song break. Uh, this song is Selena, Bidi Bidi Bom Bom.
Selena, bitty bitty bum bum, and it's Anna for Indigo Radio. Every Sunday at 1 p.m., we replay Mondays at 2 p.m. on WVEW 107.7, your favorite community radio station. Happy Mother's Day, Brattleboro. We're spending the hour with Dr. Luis Valdez. He is at the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at, at UMass Amherst. And he is speaking around men's health, specifically Latino men's health, chronic stress, and masculinity. We're going to go to the second part of his interview. Thanks for joining us. So take us to Western Mass, where you are and where your work is right now. I mean, I know you do a number of things that are not also just in Western Mass, but if you could talk about Western Mass and Latino men that you work with. Can you talk a little bit about that population, what they're up against and and what you're seeing in terms of stress and how they are dealing with stress? The large majority of the folks that I end up working with in Western Mass are Latinos or part of the Latinx community and and their their origin is is Puerto Rico, right? So they're they're living in a in a diaspora, right? So that there's been an, an exodus of folks out of the island and for a variety of reasons have ended up in, in Western Massachusetts. And the large, you know, the large majority of the folks that I've worked with are, are in the Springfield, Holyoke area. And most of the folks that I've worked with are, are male identified. So Latino men. If you could tell me, there's, there's this thing called the minority stress model, right? That, you know, of course I've learned because of the work that I've done with you, but I had never heard of that before. And so it might be helpful for you to tell us about what the minority stress model is then how that shows up in the, say, Puerto Rican community or, or Latino men? So minority stress models were, were originally conceptualized to try to better understand stress pathways. So how do, stre- how do stressors lead to sort of specific outcomes, in this case, health outcomes? And, and they're originally conceptualized for the LGBTQ community, but sort of open-ended to really help us conceptualize the, the, or, or better understand stress and stress pathways for all sort of minoritized communities. So you enter kind of like, you know, you insert whatever minoritized status and, and you can map on um, stress. And, and, and when I mean map on, it, uh, you know, it helps us better understand internal stressors, external stressors and, and sort of coping mechanisms. It, it really helps us illustrate that. And, and, and in, in our case, it helps us illustrate that so that we can better hone in on, on ways to intervene, right? So if we look at internal stressors, we can sort of intervene on either coping mechanisms or we can organize community to deal with some of the stressors that are happening. We can rectify some of the the, the ill sort of or the harm that these stressors have on, on health. The, the minority stress model helps us understand stress processing in minoritized communities. In our specific situation, you know, if we have environmental stressors, such as a socioeconomic status that, you know, uh, that characterize our environment and the places that we live that are not necessarily caused by minoritized status, but interact with minoritized status. So then we also have general stressors, like things that we everybody deals with, like family and work-related stress that, again, are not caused by minoritized status, but definitely interact interact with it. Well, another thing that I'll say is it doesn't necessarily point at causal relationships. It just helps us understand how, how things are related, but not 
directionally, right? So there's some overlaps in some of these, some of these fears, I guess, the way that I like to think about it. There's also explicitly experienced discrimination and racism as a result of being Latino. And then these expectations of rejection, what we can sometimes call vicarious or anticipatory stressors, right? Like I was saying earlier, like not necessarily a direct experience of stress, but anticipating that you're in a situation in which that type of stress or, or something can happen. The biggest piece or the biggest sort of finding or the, the takeaway from that work was that all these stresses were filtered through context of their migratory experiences. And so the reasons for leaving the island or for needing to come back here, so push-pull factors, and also their historical context. So the implications of long and violent occupation uh, of Puerto Rico, first by Spain and then the U.S., what we really found or, or what we landed on is this new for this community, at least when we're considering a minority stress model, is that all these stressors, whether, whether environmental, general, distal, proximal, uh, they were all filtered through knowledge of those experiences. And so all their experiences now were traced back to that. And so that kind of happened organically through the, through the conversations. We never asked about, you know, violent colonization of Puerto Rico or imperialism or even migration, actually. But they sort of when asked about their stress, led us back to those ideas, right? And so that they were keenly aware of how that history leads to right here, right now, and even just the way in which they're processing their stress and their experiences. Yeah. And I think that like, when I think about public health, and I think the mistake that public health often makes or the discourse around it, is that we are so often taught that, say, like, the poor health of Puerto Ricans in Springfield, we say things like, oh, it's because they're, they're poor or there's high rates of alcoholism. We don't say the sentence that, no, the health condition is, is linked to U.S. imperialism. And that's like the sentence that needs to like also come into that conversation. Maybe anecdotally, um, one of the things that, that, I've, that I've been struggling with is trying to explain that in a way that is well received by the folks that like we interact with in this academic space, right? The person who's teaching me how to do it right now is my three-year-old who is in her why phase. And so like I answer a question and she says, why? And so it's almost like the best way to get at the root of something. You know, this idea, uh, and one of the things that you mentioned earlier on in this work is, is this idea of like, why are Puerto Ricans in the, you know, in the U.S. Northeast to begin with, right? And so like really kind of going back and, and asking ourselves, like a three-year-old, the why question. And I, and I think what, what it leads to is that like, you know, the two examples that you use is like, well, Puerto Ricans are poor and Puerto Ricans abuse alcohol as, as the sort of like really stereotypical ways of looking at like health detrimental behaviors and the status of, of, of Puerto Ricans, the U.S. Northeast. But then if you ask like, well, why are they abusing alcohol? Okay, well, maybe there's adaptive stress mechanisms. Well, why are they, why is that the ways in which they're adapting? Well, maybe, you know, is there access to A, B, and C coping mechanism? Why are they dealing with stress to begin with or disproportionate levels of stress? And so if we go on to the, if we go on on this why road long enough, I think at the root of that is going to be this violent colonization of that space slave trade, the occupation of the island, uh, the, the historical like extraction of resources, both human and natural. And so it's, you know, we go back on the why long enough at the root of the things that we're dealing with as a community. Now we're going to find those, those hard to talk about, but, but very important and root factors. Mm -hmm. 
Last week, we interviewed Cynthia from Nueva Esperanza, and I would love for you to give us an overview of the men's group and how you have envisioned Ganas and what Ganas is. Sure. Yeah, no, that's <clears throat> Ganas. Ganas is, is something that I'm really excited about right now because I think it's like it, it's it's a culmination of the better part of a decade worth of and I'm saying this in quote in air quotes in men's health work. And so the word ganas, just to, you know, to take a step back, the word ganas in Spanish means desire. So ganas, right? Desire. And, and tons of research really shows us that men and really men of color in particular um, have a strong desire or ganas to live healthier lives, to live longer, to find fulfillment, to be more present for our family, for our work and for ourselves. And then we also know that the problem isn't really that men don't know how to achieve healthier lives, right? To improve their, you know, their social, emotional, and, and uh, mental and physical well-being. But it's more about how th th there's there's trouble finding and getting help that really speaks to us, that is sort of like for us, by us, and or, or that is well received by by folks. That's sort of where Ghana is supposed to come in, right? Kind of like what we're trying to develop is like to to really bridge that gap. And so this is a, the culmination of work that's been happening for the better part of the last decade to really develop transformative health programs for men that are really grounded in community, in critical consciousness building. And it's meant to really help folks disentangle their manhood and masculinity, sort of the roots of patriarchy and, and how um, a lot of our detrimental sort of health behaviors and, and things that are happening in community can be traced back to uh, patriarchy and unhealthy uh, uh, notions of, of masculinity or the performance of such. And that disentangling manhood and masculinity and taking control of our health in a way that is simultaneously sort of addresses physical, mental, social well-being and community collective advocacy and in sort of super sustainable and scalable ways, right? So we're starting small, but hoping to build this as, as a bigger piece. The, the initiative has has three prongs. And the first piece is, you know, we're building this responsive uh, gender transformative intervention. It's supposed to be, you know, we're developing this to exist live, but also in a virtual format and, and in a self-paced format to, to have a, a like a wider availability of, of these resources for, for folks living, considering sort of uh, people's specific uh, contexts and, and, and wherever they are in life you know, that this is truly a gender transformative type of experience. The other piece is that this also in, in response to what we found in the community is the lack of services that are specifically designed for and reach out to Latino men that, you know, there are resources that are, that are out there and that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to sort of create a hub that we can centralize these resources so that men can access them in one specific space. And so this is, the, there's a creation. We're also leading the creation of a culturally and gender responsive resource hub for Latino men. And then the third piece is creating responsive dialogue. And so what we're doing is generating gender transformative discourse, both at the community and at, at the academic levels. That more encompasses really uh, expanding our sort of social media reach and changing discourse around manhood and masculinity and health and, and sort of in community spaces, but also the ways in which men's health research is done. And right. So like really inserting a more reflexive process to our research practices so that you know, a, a lot of men's health researchers are men. We are inherently biased by the system of patriarchy in which we've grown up and exist. And so that bias is the ways in which we do work, right? It biases the ways in which we interpret literature and, and create uh, our, you know, our methods and do our data collection and uh, interpret our findings and discuss and the ways in which we interact with the field is all biased by like the water we swim in, right? 
And so it's also gen generating different discourse there. You know, in recognizing that there are differences in the ways in which work needs to be done or this type of intervention needs to be done. And so, uh, you know, at one side of the spectrum is sort of gender exploitive, like this idea that, you know, we recognize that there are differences in gender and that, but that we exploit these in a not so uh, uh, helpful way to really bring about some kind of behavior change. And so that reinforces gender stereotypes and inequities. Uh, if we only leverage information about, you know, or perceptions about men being the head of the household, and we leverage that information to sort of like give health, uh, health information, but then we, re we, we also recognize that, you know, not every man, not, not every person who identifies as man exists in that in that binary or exists or sees themselves as a, as, you know, as, as a primary breadwinner of the household. And then it really is sort of more of a stereotype that reinforces patriarchal notions of masculinity or gender roles. And then the middle of the spectrum, you have this gender sensitive, this idea that you recognize that there's unique gender needs, but don't necessarily, you don't, you don't seek to transform anything. Right. So like you, you don't necessarily exploit uh, stereotypes, you recognize that there's differences and you think about more, more of a, of a separation of, of sort of genders, right? It's still very gender role based space. And then the gender transformative sort of air, uh, uh, side of the spectrum that it goes beyond individual level. And that also addresses sort of interpersonal, social, cultural, and systemic factors. And so that's when I talk about disentangling it, it that it really brings to uh, light or, or it centers this idea that we really do need to you know, disentangle the roots of the ways that, that we perform gender and, and how it affects our individual, but also our community's health. Uh, this type of programming is supposed to change attitudes and behaviors, right? So like we really do deconstruct and reform our masculinity to improve upon the ways in which we live our life. And the community level, these programs are supposed are, are designed to improve upon improve upon existing services and programs for men. So this idea that, you know, if we're developing a modular intervention, that you could take pieces of this intervention and put them into other programs, existing programs, to help reform those programs as well, without having to like reinvent the wheel or completely change what's already happening. So if you think of in Massachusetts, we have this like nurturing fathers program that is like, you know, there, there's this great curriculum that's existing for some time it, it functions but it might need some of the elements of you know this gender transformative more community level dialogue to to then take that to the next level that was Luis Valdez that you were listening to talking about uh, Latino men's health and this new men's uh, program five-week study men's group that will be at Nueva Esperanza in Holyoke uh, they are working with Nueva. We had Nueva Esperanza on last week. And so if anyone's listening from the Western Massachusetts area um, and identifies as a Latino man, you're welcome to join that group. Uh, I know that they're still taking signups for that. It will be led by Luis. And we will put on our Facebook the flyer information to get in contact with that program. We're going to take another song break. This is a song called Soy el Unico by Yaritza y su Encencia.
decir porque sabes que nadie te puede tratar como yo soy el único esto es Lumbre Music Yaritza Isu Encencia, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio. Uh, we are spending an hour with Luis Valdez from UMass Amherst at the School of Public Health, and we're going to go to the last part of his interview in which he talks a little bit more about the Ganas uh, program and the men's group in Holyoke. It'd be great, actually, if you could give us an ex maybe an example from the curriculum, because it's a five-week program, right? It's a five-week program, yeah. Yeah, maybe if you could give us one or two examples of things that you might talk about in a group like this. Sure, absolutely. You know, it's a it's a five week curriculum. It's supposed to it, it, it's it's better if all five weeks are, are folks participate in all five weeks in this you know more comprehensive way. Um, but it's designed also to kind of be five standalone weeks of work. And so the you know the first week, for instance, is just an introduction to what we're doing and an exploring our masculinity. And so we have. Uh, more in-depth conversations about, for instance, you know, how we learn how to be men. Like, who do you learn how to be a man from? And what does being a man mean to you? And so it's, it's it really, it leads folks into a conversation about how their own conceptualizations about their masculinity, how those are constructed and tracing them back sort of through, through their own sort of familial history or, 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 you know, the folks that they grew up around and or moments in time in which their sort of, you know, their definition for masculinity came to be. But then we go further and really sort of disentangle, well, 
what is gender and what are gender roles and what role do you play in sort of the larger game or larger schema of things. And so that, that's, that's sort of an introduction to, to really, you know, again, this disentangling that needs to happen before moving on to, you know, conversations, you know, a later conversation is about, well, how, how does that masculinity and the ways in which we perform our masculinity affect our health, right? So a lot of the times folks aren't going to think directly about the lack of a better example at the moment, you know, being at a party uh, with a bunch of your guy friends, for instance, or folks who all identify as men, and then trying to like out drink each other as part of the of a, a performance of masculinity, right? So like, I'm manlier than you. So I'm going to like one up your beer consumption or, you know, in your, in your fast car with a, a bunch of your guy friends and you're, you're, you're going to drive dangerously because that's like what men are supposed to do, right? That's how, that's how we've learned to perform our masculinity to, to, to perform how brave we are or how well we can take alcohol or what type of exercise is beneficial to getting really big and performing masculinity. And then really talking about, is that actually health beneficial, right? So like, are, are these, are the ways in which we perform our masculinity, whether that be for other male identified folks or for, or for, or for other folks, is that health beneficial? And does that actually, does the performance of that masculinity or, or does that performance, what does it lead to really? And so it's really trying to better understand that it is a performance and that we are participating in this performance. And that a lot of the times these sort of more archaic or patriarchal notions of masculinity and the performance of those are health detrimental and are not necessarily improving our health in any way or even improving our status in society in any way but that it, that there are things that like we really need to understand so that then we understand how to like well what's the antithesis to that right so how do how do we then perform a more benevolent masculinity or a, a positive masculinity to improve upon our health, but also to, to improve upon the ways in which we relate to and interact with folks outside of ourselves, right? And outside of potentially male segregated spaces, which is, which is, I'd argue even more important than like the way, you know, taking care of the individual is like, well, how does our masculinity interact with the world around us? You know, with, you know, what partnerships we build or, you know, folks at work or folks out in, in, in the world in general. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, I feel like a lot of what you're bringing up is that is really saying or an underlying message of it is that patriarchy kills men also, whether it's by like a slow death or a faster death, but. Yeah, and I mean, we're also, you know, in danger of pathologizing folks, right? Of pathologizing men. So without pathologizing, right? So if we angle it in that way, you know, we know that men or Latino men in particular live 5.2 years less than their Latina counterpart. And we know that a lot of that has to do with sort of behavioral environmental factors. So men are more likely to smoke, more likely to abuse alcohol, engage in violence, high risk behaviors, right? Speeding, things like that. Eat poorly, hesitate to see a doctor when they're ill, right? So all these things are true. They're sort of part of the ways in which we behave in the world. And, and so Latina, Latino men are dying at higher rates than Latina women from heart disease, unintentional injuries, chronic liver disease, drug overdoses, suicide, homicide. And it's really evident that this life expectancy gap is really due to preventable causes, right? All these things are preventable, every single one of those. And, and it's even clear that, that some of these causes are due to patriarchal or archaic ideals of masculinity. So again, without pathologizing, we know that 
folks that adhere to more patriarchal ideals of masculinity, like toughness, self-reliance, emotional disconnectedness, like the, you know, the, the gamut of those things are also more reluctant to practice more healthful or health beneficial behaviors or seek care when needed. And so we can really attribute some of this hesitancy to like knowledge and, and, and whether or not people have access. But the reality is, is that we know that men that identify with more traditional, more patriarchal, archaic notions of masculinity are more vulnerable to all of these things. And so like, th those are all knowns, right? Like I, we can, we, we can post a long list of data or, or, or literature to, to show that. On top of that, so the last thing I'll mention is that on top of that, that the, all that is compounded by the effects of racism and discrimination and other systemic issues that disproportionately affect these men, right? So like on top of all those things, that's also the case because you could also make an argument that patriarchy is ubiquitous across, you know, culture and race and ge geographic location. And all these things are true in most spaces in the world, but the, the, the sort of the added bonus or, or the compounded uh, uh, tragedy here is that for men of color in particular, then all that stuff is compounded by racism and discrimination. Yeah, for sure. I just want to ask you if there was anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to add around any of your work or any of your thoughts around, you know, the fact that really racism kills people in, in lots of different ways, right? Yeah. Do you have any last thoughts for our listeners? I'm I'm not sure. Thank you for doing the work that you do and and shedding light on on some of the work that's happening here, particularly work that historically hasn't really uh, been 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 highlighted. So I appreciate appreciate the work you're doing. Que te vaya bonito Ojalá que se acaben tus penas Que te digan que yo ya no existo Que conozcas personas más buenas Que te dé lo que no pude dar aunque yo te haya dado de todo, nunca más volveré a molestarte. Te adoré, te perdí y ya ni modo. Cuántas cosas quedaron prendidas hasta dentro del fondo de mi alma cuántas luces dejaste encendidas y yo no sé cómo voy a apagarlas ojalá que mi amor no te duela y te olvides de mí para siempre que se llenen de sangre tus venas y que la vida te vista de suerte <risa> 
yo no sé si tu ausencia me mate aunque tengo mi pecho de acero pero nadie me diga cobarde sin saber hasta dónde te quiero cuántas cosas quedaron prendidas hasta dentro del fondo de mi alma cuántas luces dejaste encendidas y yo no sé cómo voy a apagarla ojalá y que te vaya muy bonito That was Shabella Varga, Vargas, Que Te Vaya Bonito. And this is Anna for Indigo Radio. We spent the hour with Dr. Luis Valdez. He's at the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at UMass Amherst. And if you um, caught the whole show, he was speaking a lot around his work on masculinity, uh, chronic stress, health disparities, especially with Latino men uh, who really bear a, a disproportionate burden of chronic disease, alcohol and substance use, depression, anxiety, and chronic stress. And he also talked about the new men's group with Nueva Esperanza in Holyoke. That is for uh, people who identify as Latino men. And we're going to put that information on our Facebook. We interviewed Nueva Esperanza last week. And I have also in the studio Sergio Aurora. And Sergio is from Mexico, grew up in Mexico City. Sergio, thanks for being here with me. Thank you for having me, Anna. And I would just love for you to comment on Luis's work and uh, your thoughts on masculinity, especially for, and, and stress and health for Latino men. Thank you. Well, um, uh, I really enjoyed that interview with uh, Dr. Valdez. And I think it's very important for men to really learn about masculinity and you know because men we tend you know to neglect our health and I think nowadays it's very important to take care of ourselves not just physically but uh, I think it's very important also to take uh, care of our mental health. Thank you for that Sergio and it's Mother's Day do you have any shout outs? Well <laughs> I just want to say uh, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> <laughs> to all the mothers out there, and happy Mother's Day to my mom, who is uh, who lives in Mexico. Yeah, and it's it's a different day in Mexico, Mexico yeah, in right? Mexico, it's uh, May tenth. Okay. Yeah, that's that's Mexican Mother's Day. Okay. Well, happy 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 Mother's Day for all of those who care and mother, regardless of gender identity, and um, to all the mothers in the the world, all those that physically bear children, who take care of children. For all of those who have lost mothers, for all of those mothers that are behind bars and shouldn't be, for all of those mothers that are separated from their children, that is too many in, in the world. And yeah, for all those people who, who care for, for little ones across the globe. And I'm just going to read this before we go out 
on our last song, I just saw a friend had posted this. It's by it's a from a 2020 in style piece by a woman named Sarah Peterson um, about mothering during the pandemic. And she writes, once a year on Mother's Day, we celebrate mothers with trite mugs proclaiming motherhood as the hardest, most important job. Wink, wink. But in reality, mothering is not respected as, quote, real work. It figures in our collective imagination not as labor, but as something warm and fuzzy and supposedly, quote, natural. Maternal love and self-sacrifice are put on a pedestal, but maternal work, the lifeblood of literally everything, is still invisible. At the very least, this pandemic should have made it less so. I think that's also an important thing to remember is how much uh, impact the pandemic has had on those taking care of children. And I would say um, I would put childcare workers in that and nurses and doctors and teachers. So we got to keep doing better and uh, taking care of our, our children and, and all of those that mother. So we want to give a big thank you to Dr. Luis Valdez for joining us on Indigo Radio and for all the work that he is doing. It was great to have him on the show. We're going to go out with Juan Gabriel, one of Luis's favorites. (laughs) Sergio, can you tell us who Juan Gabriel is? Juan Gabriel is uh, this. um, He's a huge Mexican um, musician and songwriter. Uh, he's very known. Uh, he's well known for you know his his beautiful voice and and he he knows how to put on a show. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely does. So we're gonna go out with his song El Noah Noah. Am I saying that right? El Noah Noah. Correct. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks again, Luis. And we'll be back next week.